All right. Let's take our Bibles this evening, please, and open to the book of Revelation. Revelation. We're going to do a very quick little review on chapter 13, and then we're going to get into chapter 14. And God willing, we'll get the first 13 verses done. All right. If you're ready, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we pause and bow in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the whole Bible and now this amazing book of Revelation. Thank you for it and the truths. Thank you on how it can lift our spirits and increase our faith. Thank you for a coming Savior. Help us always to be looking every day for his coming. And now, Lord, have thine own way in our hearts and help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 13 was an amazing and sort of a scary chapter, if you will, because in it we saw the rise here of the Antichrist. Now, remember, chapter 12, verse 1 through to chapter 15, verse 4 is what we call parenthetical. And so these chapters here and these verses are not in chronological order with the rest of the book. But rather, we take a, a step back and we view the scenery, the, um, the tour guide, if you will, is explaining certain things to us. In chapter 12, he explained about Israel and how the Lord Jesus came and so on, and what will happen to uh, Israel during the tribulation, uh, how the devil will try and persecute Israel. And here in chapter 13, we're looking at about the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. And it seems at this point, the Antichrist, the, the, the real vicious part of Antichrist, he actually makes his world appearance at the beginning of the seven years. Personally, I think he's in the world today, my opinion only, but I'm not the only one who thinks that way. I think that he's well-connected. I think that he's, at any moment, could, you know, appear, so to speak. So he's there. And so he's enjoyed three and a half years of, of uh, his political reign. He's now killed and brought back to life. But boy, is he a changed person. And I believe the change is because there's a demon inside him now that wasn't there before. And that Satan needed a demon-possessed Antichrist in order to accomplish his will for the next three and a half years and so he's described here and we're not going to take the time right now to look at it you can go back in our video series and you can easily watch it and then also we saw in verse number 11 um, the false prophet another beast and likewise he makes his his appearance i also think the false prophets in the world today and he will come on the scene, I think, at the same time that the Antichrist does at the beginning of the tribulation. But he really comes to the forefront now in this three and a half year point. Changes happen. And so we don't know all of the details, but my guess is that at this point, the false prophet 
is a demon inside his body because he has certain abilities and powers and so on and does certain things again that seems to me anyhow could only happen if there was a demon inside him. You see, we're told in chapter 16 in verse 13 that these three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouths of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We're also told later that the Antichrist and the false prophet are taken directly and, and put right into the lake of fire. And so these are things that suggest to me that there's demons inside these two characters. Well, we come now to chapter 14. And chapter 14, the scene changes. And the Apostle John says in verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion. Now, S-I-O-N is the same as Z, or for some of you, Z-I-O-N. It's the same. Zion. The word Zion means a, a raised place, a fortification. And it's used well over 150 times in the Bible. It's known as the city of David because in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 7, David conquers it and it becomes his home base. And then it's also known as the city of God because it seems that Solomon built the temple there. Now these days there's a lot of discussion amongst the, the theologians, the giants, and they're uh, of divided opinion as to the exact geographical location of Zion. You see, the area we know as Jerusalem is built upon, oh, maybe seven hills or mountains, if you will. And so there's some discussion. You'll, you'll read different uh, authors and they'll say this is Mount Zion. Others will say this is Mount Zion. The truth is the Lord knows where his mount is. And so we don't have to worry about that. But this is prof prophecy. It's prophetic at this point. Remember, it's parenthetical. So it's parenthetical prophecy. And John looks and sees the Lord Jesus, this lamb, capital L-A-M-B, this Lord Jesus as a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. Hey, we've seen that before, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Where? Back in chapter 7, we found the 144,000. Uh, these were Jews, but they seemed to be spread all over the world at that time. They got saved, and no doubt because of their zeal and their evangelistic efforts, uh, untold millions will come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. They'll know Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, as Lord, as Savior. They'll submit their will to Him. They'll invite Him into their heart to forgive their sins and to be their Lord. These 144,000 will help maybe millions and millions of others. Um, probably a lot of Gentiles in there. A lot of non-Jews will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You know, we live in a city here in Surrey. And we've got a 600,000 
people in this city, or over 600,000, and most of them don't know Christ as Savior. This city, it's a strange city. We've got all kinds of religions in here and some real pagan ones, but people seem very sincere and very set in their religion. And as we go door to door and we knock on doors and get to know people, and we find out all of the different religions they belong to, all we can do is encourage people and give them a little bit of gospel literature. Well, it's our firm belief that should the tribulation be right around the corner, that it stands to reason that some of the people here in Surrey are going to get saved. They're going to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, that's the good news. The not-so-good news is that the price of salvation in the tribulation is more likely than not, it's going to mean martyrdom. It's going to mean that come the halfway point, at least anyhow, of the tribulation, when Antichrist, that vicious beast of an Antichrist, rises and starts imposing the, the mark of the beast, the 666, and no man can buy or sell. None of the believers are going to take the mark. They'll know what it is. They'll avoid it like the plague. And they'll have to pay for it with their lives. And there's going to be untold multitudes. We read about them in the book of Revelation. And they were sort of waiting beneath the altar. Asking the Lord, how long, how long? Well, this crowd of 144,000. Some theologians seem to think it's a different crowd. And one of the reasons they, they claim it's a different crowd is because there doesn't seem to be any mention of the 12 tribes here. There's a few other reasons why they seem to think that this is a different crowd than the first 144,000 in chapter 7. Myself, I think it's the same crowd. I think that the first view of the 144,000 was spread out all over the world on earth. This view of the 144,000, remember, we're in parenthetical section it's parenthetical prophecy this view views them prophetically standing with jesus the battle's done well i like to think that they got the victory over the antichrist and over his 666 and if you look please at verse 3 it says and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. Remember them? We studied about them. They're good. These are good beasts. <laughs> and good elders too. By the way, husbands, if your wife ever calls you a beast, it might be something good. You never know. You're going to have to ask her and find out. Uh, so it says, And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So there you have it. They sing a new song. I sing a new song. Since Jesus came. Hmm? Wow, that's a great, a great hymn that we like to sing. Now look back at verse 2, if you will. Actually, let's finish off. We didn't finish off verse 1. And so here's the 140 and 4,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. If ever you're going to get a mark, there's a good mark to get right there. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of a great thunder. Now, that 
normally suggests the voice of God Almighty. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They use harps for joy, beloved. Uh, this is joy. This is victory. There's something wonderful about the musical instrument known as the harp. There's all kinds of different harps. But generally, harps tend to possess a real beauty. When you, when you hear the strings played properly, there's something deep. There's something of resonance. There's something spiritual, it seems, about the beauty of the harp. And it's by no accident that God chose the harp. God is the one who invented music. And God knows all about the different musical instruments. And it's just very interesting that he didn't choose the electric guitar. He didn't choose the saxophone. Now, there's nothing wrong per se with those musical instruments as long as they're played nicely. But God chose the harp. There's something wonderful, special about a, a harp. I love the harp. A few years ago, I sent away for instructions how to build a harp. And I built my first harp a few years ago. And I loved it so much. I sent away for some other instructions on how to build another harp that had a sound box to it. And I built that as well. And over these past few years, I've learned to play the harp. I've taken some professional lessons, although I'm far from a professional. The professional was professional. <laughs> I am just really still a, a beginner. But I do play the harp and I love it. It's very beautiful music to me. Now, I want to show you a picture of the traditional Israeli Neville harp. And we have that photo. Let's put that photo up now, shall we? And here you have a picture of a Neville harp. Now, uh, around where the strings meet the, uh, the, the soundboard, uh, you can't see it quite well in this picture, but they carve Hebrew letters of the alphabet. The Neville harp has 22 strings. Each one corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And quite literally, what they could do is take their words and plink plunk them out to music. So that's very interesting. I've been captivated with that thought of being able to um, take the Hebrew words and to sound them out on the strings. I'm very fascinating, fascinated as to what that would sound like. I'm able to read Hebrew. I've studied it for 25 years and I'm able to read Hebrew and I would love to be able to transpose those words onto the strings. And maybe one day I'll, I'll try it. But I'm not saying that this is exactly what they're doing here in Revelation. But I'm just saying it's very interesting, beloved. And so here we have the, um, the uh, uh, 144,000 with their song of victory. And it's a special song too. By the way, let's just take a look back in chapter 5, shall we? Revelation chapter 5. And let's look please at verse 8. Here we find our friends, the beasts, and, and the elders are in there too. And 
It says in verse 8, chapter 5, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. There it is there. Maybe they had the Neville harps. And golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And I want to remind you, your prayers are important. See, where did these, these vials full of odors, where do these prayers come from? Like from you and I. Yeah. Our prayers are important to God. And here they're used as wonderful um, incense up in heaven. That's sweet. Verse 9, And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. This is quite exciting here. And uh, we find that the beasts and the 24 elders got together and there were harps. Harp music in heaven. Hallelujah. Some people have the idea that when we get to heaven, we're going to all sit around on a cloud. Everyone gets his own cloud. And we sit on top of the cloud and we play a harp. Hey, I kind of think that's um, maybe not as accurate as it ought to be, but I do believe there's going to be harps in heaven. And I do believe that some of us, anyhow, will have the joy of playing harp music and bringing sweet honor and glory and victory to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. So that's coming. Um, take a look at chapter 15 for just a second, would you please? Ah, uh, Let's see here. Verse number two. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Having the harps of God. What a day that's going to be. Hallelujah. Victory is always precious. It's always sweet. And it seems that um, this is put here to prove that through Jesus Christ, we can be victorious. I ask you, are you living a victorious life? How is it going, my Christian friend? Are some days better than others? That's kind of where we're at, isn't it? Not every day is top of Mount Zion, victory, glory. Some days were sadly found down in the valley of despair. And we need to cry out to the Lord. And in his mercy and his love and his kindness. Oh, don't you love Jesus tonight? Hallelujah for our victorious Savior, Jesus. And he comes and holds us up in his arms. And he'll help us back up the mountain of victory. The Lord wants us to experience his victory. We can only have victory as we yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives every day. Now let's get back to this 144,000. Verses 3, 4, and 5. I want you to notice that there are five things said about these 144,000. Five things. Now I'll read the verses and you try and pick them out, the five things, and then we'll go back over them together. I'll start reading. Verse 5. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the 144, 
thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now there's the first thing I want you to notice. Something, there's five things said about the 144,000. And here's the first thing. They're redeemed from the earth. Verse number four. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. How many did you come up with? So number one, they're redeemed from the earth. Number two, they're not defiled with women. Hey, there's nothing wrong with, with being a woman. The Bible is not being sexist here. What it's talking about is the bad kind of women. And there are some bad women in the earth that try to defile men. God is the one who instituted marriage. God is the one who invented women. And he brought Eve unto Adam. So the Bible's not being sexist here at all. God is just saying that these 144,000, they, I guess, were smart enough wise enough or blessed enough to stay away from the wrong kind of women. And it says they're virgins. And then it says um, in verse 5 that they, uh, in their mouth was found no guile. That's number 4. And number, number 5, they are without fault before the throne of God. So here's this company of 144,000 and we're learning more about them some amazing things by the way this word guile is not a word that we normally use these days in our conversation our everyday conversation but the word guile means to use craft or trickery in order to deceive in order to get something to attain it's a, a word almost like a decoy in order to deceive someone for selfish purposes. Now that's sort of what the Antichrist is doing. He's a man of guile. And he'll use falsity and trickery and decoy and things like that in order to achieve his purposes. Well, I'm happy to say that this crowd of 144,000, there's no guile in their mouth. Now, by the way, can I suggest that this isn't just for the 144,000. This is for all God's people. This is for you and for me, beloved. We can't go around with guile. We can't be using trickery and deceit and fraud and lies and set up verbal decoys in order to trick and deceive people in order to get things for ourselves. We have to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. We have to let all of our, our, our speech be seasoned with salt. We need to speak as Jesus spoke. Well, we need to move on here. And we find next come three more angels, each making an announcement. And so we'll pick up in verse 6. Verse 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth 
and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, it's important we understand something here. God has committed the gospel of Jesus Christ to men to preach. Not to angels, but to men to preach. God's given the gospel to you and to me. We are to be preachers, if you will. We are to be evangelists. We're to be soul winners. That doesn't mean you've got to go and stand on the street corner or stand behind a pulpit and preach. But it does mean that you do need to look for opportunities to spread this gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The word gospel means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God became flesh. His name was Jesus. He lived. He died for our sins on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He's alive today. And he's knocking on your heart's door. And whosoever will may come. The invitation is open to everyone. It's not open to a select few. This class may come, but this class may not. It's open to whosoever will. If you're watching this broadcast tonight and you've, you've never yet repented of your sins, asking Jesus to forgive them, asking Jesus to be your Savior and to be the Lord of your life, if you've never done that, then you're not born again. You're not part of God's family. You've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't know the blessings of walking with God. You may be a nice person, a nice religious person, but if you've never done this, you're not born again into God's family. It's as simple as that. Now, some people will take exception to what I've just said. Some people will call names and, and say I'm wrong, but they have to take that up with God. I'm just taking the Bible Literally, grammatically, historically, I'm taking the words of God that were given to men to understand in a normal, common sense way, and I'm giving them to you. That's all I'm doing. And if you think I'm wrong, then you need to read the Bible yourself. Read the Bible yourself and check it out. You can send me in a comment if you like. No problem. This gospel here in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7 is being preached not by men, but by an angel. And it's not called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the everlasting gospel. It involves fearing God and glorifying Him and worshiping Him. And this is the everlasting gospel. This is different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the everlasting gospel. It's an everlasting truth. It's an overriding principle to all mankind. And an angel is going all through the world proclaiming to people everywhere they need to fear God. They need to give glory to God. They need to worship God, the one true God. And by the way, if any man will start there and from his or her heart fear God, worship Him, glorify Him, God will lead them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where it leads to. 
because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now we've moved to verse 8. Here's the second angel. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wow, this Babylon, this great city, there's a lot of discussion as to what it is and where it is. A lot of discussion, different opinions. But it's going, it's out there somewhere and it's going to be very prominent in the tribulation. And now these are prophetic words because remember, we're in chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 15, verse 4. It's parenthetical, but it's prophetical. It's going to happen. This other angel is, is telling us that this great nation that the whole world has come to depend on. It's going to fall flat because the judgment of God is against it because of what they've been doing. It says, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. God's wrath is against her fornication. Fornication has always been wrong. It's always an offense to Almighty God, whether man legalizes it or not. What does God think of it? Well, there's different types of fornication. We're not going to get into that. Now look at verse 9. Here's the third angel. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Now we studied that back in chapter 13. Verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture. It's pretty bad stuff, folks. And he shall, without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name Oh, beloved, this is serious. Every man, woman, and young person in the, in the tribulation time who's not saved, who receives the mark of the beast in the forehead or on the, the right hand, they're going to end up in the lake of fire and they're going to be there forever and ever and ever. Hell and the lake of fire are not some place where you're thrown into and you evaporate instantly. You get in there and you stay there and you suffer and you suffer. You say, I, I, I don't like, I don't like God. No, no, that's not the problem. It's the devil you should not like. Your sin you should not like. As long as you love your sin and you love the devil, the author of sin, your head is straight there. The pit of hell and the lake of fire. There's only one way, only one way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These are very, very serious words. Very serious indeed. The only way to avoid death and hell and lake of fire is through repentance of sin to Jesus Christ, acknowledging Him as the one and only, receiving Him as Savior, receiving Him as Lord into your heart. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the rapture will happen soon. The tribulation will start. And some unsaved people will be watching this video broadcast. And if you are, I pray with all my heart 
that you give earnest heed to the claims of Jesus Christ and be born again so that you can be with us one day in heaven. We need to quickly finish off verse 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And so the Bible is suggesting patience now, joy in heaven. Keep on serving. Keep on doing what's right. Oh, my beloved, I'm excited to be part of the family of God with you here on earth right now and living for Jesus. Let's keep on doing it, shall we? Patience now, joy in heaven. It's coming and it will probably be here sooner than we think. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to study the book tonight. Thank you for the great truths of Revelation. Lord, increase our faith even more so day by day we can live for you with patience. Our Father, we pray now for the offering time. We pray you'd move on the hearts of your people to go to the donate page and to give something, even if it's little, to give something. Something that'll help us in the general fund. Our Father, this pandemic has has really stretched us. And Lord, thank you for your keeping power. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people. Thank you for their attendance, for their prayers, for their love, for their fellowship. Herein is the patience. Help us, Lord, to exercise patience today in order for joy tomorrow. Have thine own way, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Beloved, would you go to the donate page right now and give something to the Lord? Give something that will help out the cause. Would you do that now? God bless you as we do.